0: It was a good song to sing to set up our time in this passage as Jeff read us for us a minute ago. First twenty-four verses here of Luke 14. But uh before we get started, let me just open our time in a word of prayer. Would you just follow or bow your head with me as I pray here? God, I thank you now for the privilege we have of just being in your word. I thank you for these great songs that we sung to. Be reminded of not only your greatness, but your meekness, your glory displayed in humility. And uh, God, I just pray that those words would be more than just words we sing, but that they would just have depth of meaning in our heart and lives. And may those words set us up to be able to understand this glorious passage this morning. So Lord, we commit our hearts to you and our minds to you. The distractions of our weeks, the, the issues, the problems, may we just for a, a moment be able to let those be washed through Your Word and our faith in You would grow. And allow us, God, to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And I pray this in Christ's name, Amen. Well, uh, a few weeks ago, I was actually invited to go to a board meeting for a ministry, one of our partner ministries, Go, go to Ministries. And, uh, and they wanted me to go to the board meeting and talk about a couple things. And so they flew me to where their meeting was. And uh, it was just a day and a half meeting, kind of an in and out trip. So I flew down to the meeting. When I was flying back from the meeting, I had a, one of these little stopovers in Ohio. And I was just sitting on the plane waiting for the next round of people to come in. And as I'm sitting there, this young, young 30-ish guy comes walking on the plane, dressed to the hill, this guy had, uh, you know, appeared to be very successful, very hip-looking, you know, opposite of me kind of guy, right? You know, and uh, and he just he walks in and he sits down next to me, and uh, and he looks up my phone that was on my my lap and he says, "Oh, why'd you pick that phone?" And I said, "Well, I didn't. Jeff told me to buy it, so." <laughs> said, I have no idea why I have any of the technology I have. Jeff just says, this is what you need, and so I get it, right? And so I, I, I said, I don't know. This guy that I work with, he told me this is a good phone. He said, well, it is a good phone. And he started talking about phones. And it turns out that he's a vice president of a very uh, well-known telecommunications company. And, uh, and, and, and he's a very successful guy for a young guy. And, he, uh, and his job is he's the vice president of new technologies, So he knows everything that's going to happen five years from now. So he starts telling me about what cell phones are going to be like, what TVs are going to be like, what the Internet's going to be like. He's just going on and on. He goes, in fact, let me show you what the cell phone will be like five years from now. Pulls out of his bag a prototype of of, of a future phone. And he says, we don't actually have the technology to run this thing yet, but let me just kind of show you what the prototype is. And and he's going on and on. And, uh, And so he's explaining all this stuff. It was really fascinating. I asked him in a kind of a jovial way, I said, so what's it like to live in the future? Like, you're out there living five years from now, what's that like to live in the future? And he goes, oh, I hate it. I said, really, you hate it? And he goes, yeah. You know, he said, to be honest with you, I'm on a Facebook fast. I said, what do you mean? He goes, you know, I have 7,000 friends on my Facebook account. He says, but I have no relationships, and I'm looking for authentic relationships. Now, he has no idea the door he just unlocked, right? <laughs> you don't sit next to a pastor and say, I'm looking for authentic relationships, right? I mean, it's like, whoa, you know, woo, you, you just said it, man, thank you. So uh, he didn't know what I did for a living, so we started talking, and, and uh, eventually it, it came out, and, and this whole conversation started about what is authentic relationships. And, uh, and we were talking about the difference between virtual relationships, authentic relationships, sort of talking about the fact that that real relationships need time, right? You got to actually spend time with people. You can't just not spend time and have a relationship. And it actually needs shared space. You got to be in the same room with someone to have a real relationship with them. And, and real relationships need conflict. Right? You've got to be able to have conflict so that you can work out resolution and, and grow together in the midst of that, that conflict. And it needs touch. You need to be able to hug people and high-five people and all these kind of things. Right? These are things that real relationships need. And he goes, yeah, that's what I'm looking for. I'm longing for that. And so, we, so I started talking about God. turns out that he was raised in a church, actually a really good church. And I know the church that, that he was raised in. And I said, well, do you go to that church? He said, no, I don't, I, I'm having a hard time finding a church. And I said, why is that? He goes, I, I feel like church sometimes is a virtual reality, you, you know, but it's, it's not a real thing. It's a virtual thing. We, we, people set up this kind of play world in the church. And, and I said, I, I said give me some examples of that. What do you mean by that? And he said, well, I travel all over the world. He says, in, in terms of new technologies, we test most of the new technology in tribal settings in Africa. He said, there are tribes in Africa that have more advanced phones than you have in the United States. He, he says, so I go all over the world. I am in poor sections in China where they're making the phones. I'm, I'm in, in tribes. He goes, and, and I see some of the worst living conditions in the world, and it breaks my heart. And he says, and I can't help but imagine that, that this is not the way God wants the world to be. And that as a Christian, there should be some kind of internal response to that level of sin. To what sin has done. It's destroying families and cultures and communities. He says, and then I go back to the church, and the church tells me how much money they spend in missions. And, but really, what we're really interested in, and he was pretty critical, right? Really interested in was just having great Easter celebrations and great Christmas celebrations and great children's things and great this and great that. And he says, really, it's all about us. And then, and then we set aside 25% of our budget to go to missions, and, and we'll send off a team once a year to go somewhere and come back and report back on all the great things they did. But their heart wasn't moved by this. They did it. It was right. But he said, I'm finding that disconnect. He says, I, I leave these countries and I'm crying because I see the, the pain of these people. And I come back and all I hear is, we give money to missions. And he says, I think that's a virtual church. I don't think it's the real thing. Now, of course, he had, you know was really strong and passionate. We had a great conversation about it. and uh, But I was thinking about that conversation because I... This week, a little bit yesterday, a little bit as well. As I was just reading through this passage of what Jesus was saying here in Luke 14, Jesus is really trying to get to the heart of the kingdom of God, and and I, I think this guy on the plane was trying to get to the same thing. I think no matter how critical he was, and he had a pretty critical spirit to him, but, but no matter what, how critical he was, there was something there worth listening to. That, that he was saying there's a, a disconnect between our actions and sometimes our heart. And, and maybe our heart is more in love with, with our culture than it is with really the people who need the gospel. We're not really moved by that. And I think he was putting his finger on something that I think was worth listening to. Because I I think that that might be the exact same thing Jesus is getting at here. See, Jesus is having dinner with some Pharisees. He's just in chapter 13 told a bunch of people, hey, you religiously lost people, you're not going to wind up in heaven just because you're religious. Religion is not the path to heaven. You can hang around the church, you can hang around the teaching of Jesus, but if Christ isn't everything to you, don't think you're getting into the kingdom. Pretty harsh words. And, and then he gets to chapter 14, and now what he does is he begins to start explaining the heart of the kingdom of God. In chapter 14 and 15 and 16 of Luke, that's what it is all about. The heart of the kingdom of God. The, the ethics of the kingdom of God. The, the things that should be governing our hearts As we engage this world, not necessarily whether or not we're giving enough money to missions or we're sending enough mission teams out, but what's the heart that's driving that? And that's what seems to start getting unfolded here in chapter 14, goes on all the way through chapter 16. And really stopping to think about letting this passage challenge us, because I was thinking as I was listening to this guy. That that was something that was important to him. Not how much money his church gave. But really, he was concerned about the heart of the people as he was talking to them about the world. What was going on as they were doing this and giving their money and sending the teams? What was the ethic that was driving it? If it was religion, which is what his assessment was, then he wanted nothing to do with it. If it was the gospel, then that's what he wanted. And in one sense, whether this guy was right or wrong, this is what Jesus is getting at here. And so what we're going to do is we begin chapter 14, and for the next several weeks as we go through this, the 14, 15, and 16, we're going to get what I want to just simply call the kingdom ethic. What is the heart that's to drive all that we do? So we're going to see four things today. We're going to see a kingdom vision a kingdom humility, a kingdom honor, and kingdom priorities. All of these things deal with, with, with the motives of our hearts. The motive of people. The motive of service. The motive of giving. The motive of, of agendas. And all of these things are meant to challenge us in our walk. And, and my heart for us as we go through this is that we would let the Spirit of God challenge the areas where our ethics are being governed more by the love of this world than the love of God. And I believe as you go through this, you will be challenged. There's no way around it. Because we all struggle with this, and, and so it's intended to challenge us. But, but hopefully as, as you go through this challenge, you'll, you'll know the grace and mercy of God and that God is bringing us through this challenge so that He would conform us to Jesus. So let's look at this here. Let's look at the kingdom vision look at these first six verses with me. It says, that one Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Dropsy is just basically when fluid builds up in your legs. And so his legs were swollen, probably had like congestive heart failure, you know, where the fluid builds up and probably had a hard time walking and breathing and, and, you know, probably was real gray in his face and swollen legs and kind of limping along kind of really in a bad place so so here before him is a man with dropsy and Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying is it lawful to heal on the sabbath or not but they remained silent then he took him and he healed him and sent him away and he said to them which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull them out, and they could not reply to these things. Okay, so it's the Sabbath day. Their Sabbath day was similar to ours for Pharisee. Uh, they went to the synagogue in the morning, they sang songs. Uh, a teacher a rabbi would have taught them. After synagogue, they would go back home and have dinner together, oftentimes invite people over. So that's what we have here. They've been to the synagogue, teaching has happened. They're now having their, their Saturday lunch. At this moment, though, you notice something about this lunch. This is not just come on over and hang out, Jesus. What's going on at this lunch? They brought Jesus over to watch him. Right? They're waiting for him to fail. They hate him. They are doing everything they possibly can to destroy Jesus. They do not like his teaching, they do not like his heart. And then it says, and behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. So suddenly now there's this guy here who's sick. Now the question is, is it a plant? Did they bring this guy with dropsy in front of Jesus to see if he'd break their Sabbath laws or not? No one really knows. I'm inclined to think this was a plant. These guys would not have invited a guy to their house with dropsy. It's just not the way they operated. So, but regardless, here's a a man... And, uh, and, and, and now, they're all having, some. I'm picturing them kind of laying at their tables, you know, where they kind of lay down and eat, and in comes this guy with dropsy, and, and, uh, and all the Pharisees' eyes are on Jesus. You could imagine them thinking, oh, I know he's going to heal him. I know he is. He's going to break the law again. Right? So they're, they're waiting. Jesus, first thing he does is he does one of those Jesus things, and he asks a question. Right? I mean, what, so, so what's the question he Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now, what's the significance of that question? We know one thing about the Sabbath. You guys know the Sabbath law. You are not to work on the Sabbath. Right? Six days you work, the Sabbath day you rest. That's all you need to know about the Sabbath law. But, of course, what did they do? They added 600 and some odd different laws to make sure you kept that law. And one of their laws was, you're not allowed to heal someone unless they're about ready to die. So that's a law they added to the law of God. So Jesus now has kind of boxed them in with that question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? I remember as a young man... I, uh, you know, tended a church that you know you had to wear a suit and a tie to go to church as a guy. I had to have a tie on and a suit jacket, right? And and it'd be like if you know they would often say if you are going to go see the king, you would dress up. So if you're going to come see the king on Sunday, you should dress up. That was the logic. And I used to think well, doesn't the king see me when I'm throwing up? You know, doesn't he see me? Uh, right? Am I aren't I before the king all the time? But anyways, that that. So, so now the question came, I remember asking a Sunday school teacher, is it biblical that I wear a suit? Does the Bible teach that I wear a suit and tie on Sunday? Now, what does the, the, the Sunday school teacher, they're in a dilemma at this point, right? Does the Bible say you have to wear a suit and tie to go to church? Answer? No. Okay. Now, what do you do if you answer that question honestly, if you're the Sunday school teacher? You're in a dilemma, right? You see the dilemma. The dilemma is, well, technically, no, but, and that's how the Sunday school teacher answered it. Technically, the Bible doesn't say you have to wear a suit and tie, but if you are, blah, 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 and then they try to explain it. And I'm sitting there as a kid going, but if the Bible doesn't say it, right? And so you can imagine how a little kid handles that. See, this is what happens when you add to the Bible. Even if you're adding to the Bible to try to obey the Bible. So they're in one of these moments. Is it lawful? Is it it against the law of God that I heal, that healing happens on the Sabbath? All it says is don't work. Now, if they say, yes, it is lawful, they've added to the Bible. If they say, Right? Am I getting this right? If they say, no, it's not lawful, you're following me, right? I've already lost myself in this point. <laughs> you get the idea. If they, if they answer one way, they've added. If they answer the other way, I'm totally confused. Someone explain to me my sermon when I'm done, would you? <laughs> okay. You go to the other way, and what do they say they look like? They're being loose. You know? Like they're just going to all of a sudden turn into a bunch of hippies, right? So, so, so now they're stuck. There's no way to answer this question at all whatsoever no way to answer so when you don't know how to answer what should you do keep quiet right there's my favorite proverb in the whole bible even a fool looks wise when he keeps his mouth shut okay so jesus silences them then he heals the guy boom now what does he do then he says this in verse 5 which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out. Now what's he getting at? In their law, one of their laws was, If your son fell into a well, you're allowed to rescue him. And if your ox falls into a well, you're allowed to rescue him. So in all of their little delineations, Jesus says, Well, which of you, if you had an ox, fall into that you would go out there and work and pull him out? And which of you if you had a son? Okay, so you've added that law. You've added to, to, to your law. Now, how many of you would actually do that? If your son fell into a well, would you go get him? Now, you see what he's doing? He's pointing out their hypocrisy. Pointing out the hypocrisy of the law. Somehow, you have thought in your brain, it's okay to do this, but it's not okay to do that. Right? You've heard me use the illustration, the illustration. Again, the church I grew up in, we weren't allowed to go to movies, but you could watch a video. And so the pastor invites us over to his house to watch a video, yet we couldn't go to a movie. How come watching the Blues Brothers at my pastor's house is more biblical than watching it at the movie theater? And I'm not sure on that movie choice to begin with, okay? You see what happens? You're in that moment, I remember asking the pastor. You've heard me share this. I asked the pastor, how come I can watch this movie in your house, but I can't watch it at the theater? You know what his response was? Oh, it's the theater. I don't know what that meant. (laughs) (laughs) It's just the theater. Okay, you see, so Jesus is saying, wait a minute, how come you can do this, but I can't do that? I don't get it. Now, What's the point of this? The point is this. They valued their policy over people. When they engage the world, they engage the world through their own set of laws. Right? They, that's what they did. They, they, they evaluated this so that, so that the way that they viewed the world, their, their policies, their frameworks, is how they engaged the world. Now, you might think that you don't do that, but if you don't mind me prying a little bit, I'm going to tell you that we all do this. Now, we might not do it this way with adding laws to the Bible, but how many times have you ever been offended by somebody and you began the sentence this way, I would have never done that, right? How many of you been mad at somebody and say, you know, if I were in that situation, I would have never done that? No, uh, no way. You know, when they do that, I can't believe that, right? That's the same heart. What happens is we have an ethic that we use as the ethic upon which we judge the world. And if the ethic is not the love and mercy of God, then it's a man-made standard. See the point? We're either evaluating the world through God's love and God's mercy all the time, or we're evaluating the world through A man-made standard of love and mercy and justice. So even though I might not put some rule about what you can do with your dog on the Sabbath day, I have been prone to say this, I would never do that. I can't believe you responded that way. I can't believe you raised your children that way. I can't believe you did this. I can't believe you don't do it this way. And I have been prone to get mad at somebody because they don't do it the way that I would do it that's the same thing this is what he's getting at the kingdom ethic says we're going to evaluate the world through the lens of the love of God now if you're not evaluating the world through the lens of the love of God then you actually don't ever show mercy now you'll know whether or not you are evaluating the world through the lens of God by when someone sins in front of you you don't say I would never do that or they brought that on themselves Or, I can't believe they're acting that way. Your response should be, a gospel response would be, oh Lord, help them. And if you could use me in that process, I'd be grateful. Now that's night and day, right? I mean, that is a completely different ethic. That is a supernatural ethic. Because your default mechanism, right? Am I right on this? Your default mechanism is to say, I would never do it that way. That's our default. We can be honest, right? We'll just keep it here in this room. No one but millions of people on the internet are hearing this, that's all. you know. But we can be honest about this. And then you know what happens? When we do this and we evaluate it this way, we become like the Pharisees in that we can become comfortable in violating the law of God to uphold our standard. What do I mean by this? Let's look at the Pharisees first. They were so in love with trying to maintain the glory of God through their laws that they felt comfortable murdering Jesus. (laughs) You ever consider the irony of that? How could they feel so comfortable murdering Jesus in order to keep the glory of God? I know how. Because it's the same thing in me. I can actually develop hatred and bitterness and, and, and anger towards people to such a degree that I could just, it's you, it's you, you know. And, and I would never do it that way. And, and, and all of a sudden, that same kind of thing can come out of my heart towards people. Why? Because I'm evaluating them by my standard rather than God's love. See, this is what Jesus is getting at. He's just revealing this to them. Revealing their hypocrisy. And right there, you're a hypocrite. So this is the issue. So the the issue here is this. Are we evaluating the world through the lens of love for our neighbor all the time, everywhere, everyone, or through our own standard? Because this is the issue. The gospel ethic Sees people, not policy, sees people, not my standards. Sees people, not the way I do things. And sees people through the love of the gospel. So let me give you a couple questions to consider. How do you know if you've got kingdom vision? How do you know if you're seeing the world through kingdom vision? Two questions to ask you. First is, when people sin around us, do we look for personal justice or how to restore them? How dare you do this to me? you've done this to me, right? Boom, I'm the center of the world and now everything's evaluated by me. Or do I say when people sin, how can I be used to restore them? How can I be a tool in the hands of God to help them overcome their sins? That is a supernatural response that comes through the gospel. That comes through saying, Jesus, change my heart, make me that way. If you don't pray that, then you'll always be looking for personal justice. Second question. When people are in need around us, do we serve our own agenda before them or serve them at expense to our own agenda? These guys were not willing to help this guy with dropsy because they had an agenda. And Jesus is saying, that guy with dropsy is more important than any agenda you have. The guy needs restoration. This is what that guy in the plane, I think, was struggling with. Missing that heart. Seeing that heart. Okay, let's look at the second one. Just in case you're not challenged enough, let's go deeper. Okay? Let's get more into this here. Let's look at kingdom humility. Look at verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the place of honor. Now, here he has this parable. Here's what he's noticed. Now, just to kind of put this in perspective so you understand what's happening. Their day is no different than our day. Right? If somebody was throwing a big party, you know, let's say a a congressman or senator was throwing a party, and you got invited. You're going to walk in that party, and what do you want to do? You want to get close to that person. You want to say, I know them. Right? I see this happening at weddings all the time. When a wedding, right, bride and groom, they're kind of at the center of everything. And, and, and people go to a wedding, they want to say, oh, I've known this bride since she was four. I was her first babysitter, blah, blah, blah. And people just, you want to find your place in, in, in where you're located at, at the party. So now, you have the host of this party. Jesus is sitting back, you know, they're, they're watching him, but he's watching them. And he notices that they run and everyone's trying to sit next to the person who's running the party because the person who sits the closest is, is, is the most important and then it tears down from there. So everyone's striving to get as close as they can. He's watching this. So, he's healed these guys. He's just challenged their hypocrisy and then notice what he does is he starts telling a story. Verse 8. When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast... Do not sit down in a place of honor. Lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now what's he saying? He's saying, you know, picture a wedding. Picture this at a wedding. Can you imagine how humiliating this would be? Picture a wedding, uh, the, the dinner, and the bride and the groom, they're up on the, you know, they have the table up on a stage, let's say. say There's a big table up here. And uh, they have the spot, spots for the bride, the groom, and the wedding party, and there's the best man spot. And all of a sudden, I just come walking up and sit down in the best man spot. Boop, I just sit there. And then the wedding party's introduced, right? And I'm just sitting in the best man spot, right? And so the wedding party comes up and they're all sitting down. And finally, the best man's introduced. And all of a sudden, he's got to come up to his seat and say, Hey, uh, Leston, you're not supposed to sit here, you know? You're not the best man. Now, what do I got to do? I got to get up. It'd be humiliating and leave and walk away, right? Now, no one would ever do that. But he's saying, you know what, that's what you're doing. Do you realize when you walk into a room and you overestimate yourself, you're going to be humiliated. Now, now what's the heart of this? This isn't just advice on how to get by at a party. We know that, right? He's talking about the heart of us. And what's the problem with our heart? Our kingdom heart is we overestimate our righteousness and we overstate everyone else's problems. Isn't that true? I mean, that, that's the reality of life. When something is wrong, it's usually more your fault than my fault because I'm overestimating my righteousness. I'm in a great place. If you hadn't been this way, I wouldn't be this way, right? I mean, that's, just, that's our default mechanism. And he's saying don't do that. Don't operate that way. You're overestimating yourself and you will be humiliated. Your sin will find you out and it will be bad. Many years ago, another ministry I was preaching, this guy used to show up. He'd sit right there, front row, and he would every Sunday come up and say, that was a great sermon. I study everything you say. I go home, I take notes. I study it every night, but I still can't become a Christian. And I would say, why? And he would say, because I can't accept the fact that I'm depraved. I can't accept that fact. Now, on an earthly scale, this guy was a phenomenal guy. This guy gave a lot of money to charity. This guy volunteered. This guy, I'm telling you, man, you you could call him. You wouldn't even know him. You could call him here, and he'd travel a 1,000 miles to help you out. That's just how nice this guy was. He really was a nice, genuinely nice guy. So now, here's this genuinely nice guy, and he's being confronted with the scriptures that say, you need Christ. You need Christ. You're you're, you're not in a good place. And he's having a great place. Now, as he compares himself on an earthly scale, he's one of the best on the earthly scale. But what he wouldn't do is compare himself to God. He wouldn't do that. He wouldn't compare himself to the stuff we're studying here. And so he would tell me, I'm not ready, I'm not ready, I'm not ready. He moved. About a year or two later, he calls me and he says, guess what? I'm a Christian. And I said, what happened? Some problems happened. And I saw what was really in my heart. I saw what was there. And suddenly, he was willing to humble himself. And rather than compare himself to other people, what did he do? He compared himself to God all of a sudden. And he realized that he needed Christ. That's really the heart of this thing. But oftentimes we are involved with trying to preserve our own status. Rather than recognizing our real status. Now what makes it difficult, and what made it difficult for this guy, was that he was serving people, but without a servant's heart. He was serving people with a prideful heart. So he could give you a list of a thousand things he did for you. And I remember him saying, I do this and I do this and I do this. How could you tell me I need Jesus? I might say, because you're prideful. You're arrogant. God isn't going to evaluate you on all the things that you do. There's going to be many on that day. He'll say, Lord, I did this. Lord, I did this. Lord, I did this. And he's going to say, Depart from me. The question is your heart. He exalted himself. This is what Jesus is getting at. He's saying the kingdom ethic doesn't exalt self. Kingdom ethic takes the role of the servant, humbles himself, recognizes who they really are. So let me give you some questions that you could think about. How do you know if you've got kingdom humility? Here's the first question. Do you live your life blaming others for all your problems? Hardest people in the world for me to disciple are those who want me to fix everyone around them. Can't do that. You'll always have problems if it's everyone else's fault. Second, do you see yourself as always being right? Third, do you think that you're not getting the honor you deserve? you feel as if you go through life and no one gives you the credit you deserve? Fourthly, do you, take, do you make situations about you and your honor and not others? So I'm going to come into this thing and preach, and they say it's all about me. What about me? How come you're not thanking me? Right? Do I, am I turning a situation that should be about you and turning it to me? See, these are the questions I think that drive us to think through this kingdom ethic. This kingdom ethic is an ethic of humility. It says I need Jesus. I'm not walking in assuming I have the place of honor. I'm walking in recognizing I don't deserve anything. I'm a recipient of grace and mercy. And I'm willing to take that role. I'm willing to humble myself. The issue is not my status. The issue is how can I serve you? So, kingdom vision is about people. Kingdom humility is about about serving, not about status. But now we move to the next one, kingdom honor. Kingdom honor is about giving and not receiving. He's taking this even deeper now. It gets even much more deep. Look at verse 12. And he said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So now he says to the man who is running the party, don't get into this whole little kind of cyclical thing here. You know, you invite me to your wedding, I'll invite you to my wedding thing. Don't in essence think in in return. Now, the reality of the situation is, again, this is not just about advice on how to throw a party. What's the heartbeat here? The heartbeat here is this. We live in a world, and our default mechanism in this world is quid pro quo, this for that. Let me just explain this to you. You know the default mechanism because you've had this thought. After all I've done for you, can't you do this for me? Now, when when we say this, right, and we have said that at least once in our life, right, somewhere, you have said that or thought that or felt that. What are you saying when you say that? What you're saying is, I am not giving unconditionally the same way I've received. Right, I've received God's unconditional grace, and it's there all the time. But I'm going to give conditionally, meaning I'll give to you, Tim. I'll give to you, Tim. But after a while, I better get something back from you, or this relationship is done. Our friendship's over. I can, I can only give to you so much. Right? Isn't that our default mechanism? Jesus is saying that default mechanism is wrong. You guys throw this party, and you're giving so that you can get back. I'm telling you, find the people who can't give back to you and give to them. Do you realize how dysfunctional that sounds to the world? You realize the world sees that as completely dysfunctional. And they would tell you, don't do that. The advice of the world would say, that's dangerous. But Jesus says, that's gospel. That's the gospel. That's what you have received. Now, what happens, though? What happens? He's saying, you will receive in the end on that. Because, you see, God rewards that. So the only reciprocal reality you should be living for is God's reward. So if I recognize something, that let's just say serving Tim is a, is a pain. It's not. It's a joy to be around. But Tim, I'm just going to pretend like you're not. Okay, Let's just pretend that Tim is a drain. What happens? I could say I can only go so long. My, my relational endurance is only so long and I've got to write Tim off. But if I stop and say, you know what? Tim was made in the image of God. And I have received, therefore, I will give and I will trust that in the end God will reward me and restore me for whatever loss was given in being Tim's friend. Now there are no losses in being your friend, Tim. But if there were, God <laughs> yet, he says. <laughs> but if, if, if there were, God will restore. See, this is, this is the mindset I want you to have. You see, what happens is that if I give to receive, then I show that it's actually about me. I'm not being humble anymore, right? If I say, Tim, I can only serve you so long. You better give me something back, you see, because the reality is I'm really making this about me. I'm not making this about Christ. So I could say I've freely been given. I want to freely give. And I'll trust that God will restore in the end. There's the heart. So it's an interesting an interesting thought. And, and I think one of the things that's interesting about this is that if you find yourself with those thoughts in your mind, then you're missing this kingdom humility or this, you know, this kingdom humility. You're missing it, in this kingdom honor. So let me give you a couple questions here to think through. How do you know if you've got kingdom honor? First question when you give, Are you angry or frustrated when people do not return your giving in kind? After all I've done for you, can't you? You should be doing this for me. Secondly, when you walk into a room, are you consumed with getting the recognition you feel you deserve? Right? See, this is the idea. This is what he's getting at. He's saying, don't go this direction. Don't go this direction. This is not kingdom honor. Kingdom honor says, I'm going to serve you. I'll trust that God will reward me in the last day. And so my focus is going to be giving without thinking about the return. So our kingdom vision is about people, our kingdom humility is about service, our kingdom honor is about giving. There's one more thing, and it's kingdom priorities. Kingdom priorities. Look at verse 15. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, this is what I call the ADD moment. Okay? This guy had major ADD. He totally missed the point, right? Jesus is saying, You know, don't seek honor. You know, give and, 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 and don't, and give to people who can't give anything back to you. And let God reward you in the end. And the guy goes, Oh, the end. Won't the end be really cool? Right? So so that's what he says. That's basically what he does. Won't it be really cool to be eaten at the banquet table in, in heaven? Right? Just like, boo, missed it. Okay. Didn't hear what he said, just got caught up on one little phrase. The resurrection of the just. And then he's like, Oh, hey, that'll be a great day, won't it? You know, so I'm just imagine this guy kind of changing the topic. And just, oh, it's going to be so cool, eat bread in heaven, it's going to be awesome. And so Jesus says, okay, you've missed the point here. Your, your priorities are not where God's are. And so notice what he does. Look at verse 16. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at that time for the banquet he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything now is ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. And so the servant reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there's room. And the master said to the servant, Go out in the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. It's a pretty powerful statement. And I want you to know something about the story. <clears throat> so he says, okay, picture a, a, this great banquet. And all these people were invited And and, and they didn't show up. Now notice their excuses. Their excuses are not necessarily bad excuses. Are they not? They appear somewhat noble. If a guy gets married, he's allowed to spend a year with his wife in that culture. If you bought a field, you should inspect that field. It's part of completing the deal. Every excuse was technically good. Why does Jesus pick technically good excuses because oftentimes the religiosity that we put out there isn't bad right right when when i find an excuse not to love you right when i'm coming up with an excuse not to love you i don't say hey listen i know god wants me to love you but uh, actually i'm a wretched sinner and i want to follow after my own sinful heart rather than obeying jesus i don't say that what do i say when i put an excuse up i tried but tim won't accept it I tried, but Tim is really the one at fault. I want to do what God says, but Tim won't let me. Right? See what happens? The excuses are all good. It all seems like I'm the noble one and it's all his fault. So Jesus picks really good excuses. I think on purpose. They say, listen, it doesn't matter. When the king tells you something, when the king says come, you come. And when the king says love, you love. And when the king says forgive, you forgive. No matter how good the excuse is. See, this is I think this is the heart of what he's getting at here. And so he says, Listen, we can make all kinds of excuses to not do what the kingdom calls us to do. I could say it's too hard, I could say I'll lose too much. I'll say I'm not gonna get what I deserve out of this life. I could come up with a ton of things. I could come up with theological reasons, a whole host of reasons, but the issue on the table is God says it, that settles it, right? That's the heart of it. And so, what's he doing? What's he getting at? He's saying, when this happens, and the religiously lost people begin to make their excuses, it's done for them. Pretty harsh. He says, so now I'm going to go out to a whole bunch of people who are waiting for mercy, who are loving mercy and loving grace, and we're going to dispense this grace and mercy on them, and we're going to go out and we're going to bring them in. Now, in one sense, there's a Jewish-Gentile element here, right? That Jesus is talking to, to Israel, and he's telling them, listen, your desire to create a religion out of this truth is not going to save you, and so I'm going to go out to the nations of the world, and I'm going to pull people in from all over. And in one sense, that is the proper interpretation of this text. But for all of us, we should be challenged, especially those of us who have been around the church for a while, to ask ourselves, have we lost sight of this mercy that we so freely have received? And have we lost sight of the heart of the kingdom and his agenda to see that mercy go everywhere? Or have we put up reasonably sound excuses as to why we should not live in the mercy and grace of God. That's the heart of the text. It's a challenge. So let me give you some questions to think about here on this last one here. How do you know if you've got kingdom priorities? Do you seek to follow the heart of, Jesus, of what Jesus said without excuse? Right? When that little voice comes inside of you and says, forgive, show mercy, do you come up with 50 reasons why you shouldn't? And act on those or not? Do you say, I do not need to follow what Jesus said because no one else around me is? Tim's not trying to love me with the love of Jesus. Why should I love him with the love of Jesus? Do I say that? Here's another question that kind of gets us to God's agenda. Is God a means to your ends? We've talked about this in the past. Meaning, God, this is what I need you to do to work my life out. Or do you see God's means and God's ends as yours? Now here's what I mean by that. Sometimes God's means to glorify himself might mean that I suffer. Am I content with God's means to God's ends? Am I content with that? Or do I see God as a means to my end? See, these are the challenging reality of these ethics. Now, I want to just tell you this as we process this together. This is supposed to challenge you. Okay? I know that there's no one in this room that, this, that these words don't challenge. I'm writing this sermon this week and I'm coming up with a list of a thousand ways I'm violating this heart. It's supposed to do that to us. We're supposed to feel that little nudge. We're supposed to feel that moment where it's like, ugh. But here's the good news. God does not make you feel that way to condemn you. He makes you feel that way to free you. He wants to free you from that bondage. He wants to bring it to the surface so that then you could remember Christ paid it all. And there's forgiveness and mercy and and, and cleansing waiting. So, as we wrap this up, think about this. What's the kingdom vision? The kingdom vision is people. Not, not, not structure or policy. Not how I would do it. I walk in saying, I want to see people. I want to I be with people. Not This is how I want my life to be. I don't see myself as a, as a pastor and this is how I run my family and therefore you should run your family that way. I just want to go in and see you. Where you are. And then... Kingdom humility is service. Serve you rather than exalt myself over you. And then kingdom honor. Give to you without any thought of getting anything back from you. So that I can have kingdom priorities. This is what God's will is, that we become agents of his mercy to this world. So, whatever area of your life God has challenged you on in this text... I would call upon you to bring that to him. And for the sake of his glory, and for the sake of his kingdom, and for the sake of all the children in the room that are watching our lives, for the sake of the next generation, let's just bring whatever the Spirit of God is bringing up so that we could have an ethic that drives the mission of ethic that matches the mission of the kingdom. Would you bow your head with me? Let's just go before God and His grace and His mercy, remembering that He surfaced these things not to hurt us, but to give us grace and mercy. So Father, whatever is going on in our hearts, wherever Your Spirit is moving us, to see the areas where we're selfish and self-centered and egotistical, wherever those areas are, God. May we remember that you are not bringing this up to kill us, to hurt us, but to rescue us, to free us. Lord, living a self-centered life is a bondage. puts us in constant conflict with everyone around us, constant conflict in every situation we're in, It brings nothing but pain and heartache. Lord, I thank you that you have freed us. The freedom that is found in grace and mercy and love is so much better than the twisted glory that comes from self-centered, egotistical thinking. So Lord, I thank you for freeing us. I thank you for your mercy that comes. I thank you that we can present these sins to you and that you say, covered, done, I'll cleanse you. And Lord, as we go about our week, may you remind us continually of where we're absorbed in ourselves so that we might be set free to live in the freedom of love. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.